Good morning. Uh, my name is Fletcher. I am the high school director here at Grace. Uh, Pastor John and uh, Pastor R are not here this morning. Thank you, Sharon. <laughs> I'm a creature of habit. We what can I say? Bistros, um, they all have their own setup. <laughs> One piece, John's a two, and ours a three. <laughs> uh, but since they're uh, out of town, uh, I have the wonderful pleasure of getting to spend some time with you all this morning in God's Word. Uh, before we dive into this here, though, this morning, um, I like to give everyone a chance, and I, I, I usually do this every Sunday, I have an opportunity to be up here. Give everyone a chance uh, to just pray where you're seated. Uh, some of you, might be coming in here this morning after experiencing a week of hit after hit. Anyone ever felt that way before of a week where like, man, just one hit after the next, right? Some of you might be coming a little bit drained. Some of you might be coming a little bit anxious for all the chaos that's going to ensue around the holiday season. Uh, we all most likely are coming in with a great deal of distractions going into this morning. So I'm gonna ask that you all take a moment where you're seated and just lay all that at the feet of Jesus and then ask the Lord for you to hear clearly what he has for you this morning. And then I'll pray and we'll dive on in. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world full of chaos. And in that chaos, we experience anxiety and fear, worry and pain. And Lord, we, we just finished singing the words, come thou long expected Jesus. Lord, if we're being honest, there are so many times where in the waiting doubts can fill in. The worries can seem to take control. Lord, I ask for at least this next little bit here this morning, this would be a safe haven from that. That we would be keeping our eyes fixed on you. That we would be built up. That we'd be challenged. Ready for whatever the world might have out there beyond those doors this morning. Lift all this up in your son's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. We'll be in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Luke writes, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You don't need to tell me. I already know what you're thinking. Just like Sharon said this morning, after we got to do our Festival of Lights last night, we've kicked off our Christmas season this morning with all these Christmas songs, you must be thinking, there's not a better passage than what we just read this morning to kick off our Christmas festivities. And the truth is, I realize that uh, this is an odd passage, maybe even an uncomfortable passage. Um, what most of you probably don't know is uh, we, we spend time as a, as a team uh, earlier in the week planning out for the Sunday morning service. Uh, Sharon will meet with whoever's teaching uh, that Sunday earlier in the week, and we kind of try and do the best we can to map things out. And one of the common running jokes that's happened in these meetings lately between me, Sharon, uh, and R and John is it always seems like whenever R and John are out of town, I get the really weird passages. <laughs> Those of you who've been here for a while, have you noticed this? Okay, right? We laugh at that, and I like to poke, their, poke at R and John a lot about that. But the truth is, I actually like the weird passage. I like the obscure ones, the ones that people uh, might either skim over because it's like, what in the world is that about? Or might be a little too unsettling to read. I like those. I find those fun to dive into a good bit more. And this is a weird passage. This is an uncomfortable passage. I realize that. In fact, these verses have a long history of disturbing many Bible scholars. So much so that many have tried to excuse it away by actually saying that this passage is really speaking more allegorically uh, to the first deaths that happened in the church and the shock that the early Christians experienced in realizing that even Christians die. But we need to face what's staring us right in the face in this passage. Here we find two people in the church community who tried to pull a fast one over their fellow believers in order to gain recognition and praise for their sacrifice, only to be given the ultimate consequences for their actions. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to lean, not, to, to, to lean into this passage it may seem hard 
and uncomfortable. But in this narrative, there's warning and there's also hope. In these words, we see the seriousness of sin as well as God's faithful commitment to protect his church. See, before the events recorded in this passage, we're told of the incredible unity that had developed within the church. So much so that occasionally there were needs within this Christian community that inspired others to sell their possessions, even land, in order to make the needed financial contributions. We're told uh, before this passage that one such individual who did this was highlighted distinctly by Luke, a man named Joseph, a man so well-loved in the community and such an encouragement to the people that he actually was given a nickname, Barnabas. Chapter 4 ends with highlighting Barnabas' generosity after the church has been through the ringer of outside threats only to see God protect them and increase their number. And now, here came Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, a man known within the Christian community. It must have seemed like a strange sight to the onlookers. For the average viewer, for the average viewer, the events would have started quite similar to what was described of Barnabas. And yet things quickly take a drastic turn. As Ananias hands Peter the money, they began to hear Peter chastise Ananias. Why in the world would Peter do such a thing? It would have had to seem so strange to the onlookers. And the truth is, it probably looks pretty strange to a lot of readers today. See, the actions can seem extreme. They can seem exaggerated. We might, we might find ourselves saying, where's the grace, Peter? Where is the grace and mercy towards Ananias and Sapphira for messing up? It doesn't appear that there is a chance for Ananias to even repent and receive forgiveness for his sin. It seems overkill. But it, it only seems that way if we don't understand the bigger picture of what's happening here. You see, the church is being threatened. The church in this moment is under threat. Based off of the motivation, the goals of Ananias and Sapphira. You see, it would be easy to read this passage and say that Ananias' problem was a greed of money. That would be a mistake. It was not a greed of money that was his downfall. It was a greed for sacrificial recognition without sacrificial sacrifice. Sacrifice, Sacrificial action. Let me say that again. It was greed for sacrificial recognition without sacrificial action. 
wanting to receive all of the praise and glory for doing the utmost possible without doing the utmost possible. It was an issue of hypocrisy. It was hypocrisy in action. And more importantly, an action that threatened to disrupt the very unity that had just been described by Luke just a few verses prior. It was an action designed to cut at the heart of what was going so well for God's people at this point in time. And not just that, but we're actually told that they were influenced by Satan in their actions. And here's the most disturbing part to that. In this passage, there's nothing to suggest that this couple were not believers. In fact, everything points to that they were genuine members of the church. That Ananias and Sapphira were faithful members of the church, part of this Christian community. And what's described here is not some possession by Satan towards these two people, but rather a supreme level of temptation that pushes someone into obsessiveness towards their goal. You see, Ananias and Sapphira caved. So influenced by this temptation, so hungry for the praise and recognition that Barnabas had received, but not really bought in to the why, to what mattered. And in that process, Peter says, you simply haven't just lied at man. You have lied to God. You have tried to deceive the Holy Spirit. And that's a problem. And in so doing, they tried to disrupt this unity that had developed. And this was a threat that God determined could not be ignored. Could not just be swept under the rug. See, some might suggest that this threat isn't worth the consequences that were received. Some would say, Peter, just take the money. It's still a large donation. Don't run the risk of offending these generous givers and losing it. See, the reality is there are many reasons we might want to ignore threats that sin brings to the church. Many reasons why we might want to sweep it under the rug, bury it, and hope that no one might bring it up again, that no one else might notice it. Reasons like we can risk offending calling people out in their sin and losing the perceived benefits that they bring to the table. We fear exposed sin amongst our own will damage the growth and integrity of the church. Peter, you can't expose this. What's going to be the church's reputation when this gets out? We'll be seen as the group of hypocrites. We can't run the risk of our numbers dropping. 
Some might even suggest that their sin can't possibly be that bad because they're so successful in life. They had this money to give. That shows that they had this success, that God had blessed them. It can't possibly be that bad. And with their success, they could pass along some of that success to the rest of us. See, these are all reasons for ignoring the threats that we see today. A few years ago, I had a front row seat into one of the bigger scandals into the evangelical community. Where one of the top dogs fell and fell hard. And during those years, as I had a front row seat that included huge levels of hidden sin, corruption, and hypocrisy, the arguments whenever myself and others brought these issues up to others, was always the same. We can't run the risk of exposing all of this and losing out on our success. We're making money, so either it isn't true, or it's not as bad as you say it is, because we're blessed right now. Our numbers will plummet. We can't run the risk of this getting out. And I don't even think it's actually happening like you say it is. And then with time, it came out. It, it got exposed in, in the worst ways possible. Media story after media story. Many people lost jobs. Heads rolled. It was a disaster. And here's what fascinated me about all that. The excuses didn't stop. To the very, very end, they kept trying to hide it and hinder it, not realizing that in this hypocrisy, in this corruption, they did not see the untold damage it caused to so many of my peers. Countless men and women who saw the same front row experience I did who said, if this is the best of what Christianity has to offer and this is the level of hypocrisy that I see, I want nothing to do with it. In the process of trying to hide everything to avoid dropping in numbers, guess what? Numbers plummeted. They took a nosedive. The decay became more and more apparent. And yet even to this day, I know of people who say, that was all blown out of proportion. He was so successful. He was making us so much money, which means God's hand was on him. It had to be all good. It had to be right as long as we got a piece of the pie. See, the damage it would cause by not dealing in a timely fashion with sin that was destroying the unity and integrity of God's people, they couldn't see it. This was a major threat to God's people. 
to hinder the unity. See, the reality is in this instance, they were dealing with the biggest threat they had come across yet. Up to this point, they had been dealing with outside impact, people that were attacking them from the outside. This was the first true internal attack in the church that they were experiencing. And it had to be dealt with swiftly because it would have been a killing blow to the unity of the early church if it was left undone. This was Satan's work. He knew what he was doing. He knew his target and his aim was right on. There's a spiritual element to this battle in this passage that we're seeing. And we're shown how single-minded Ananias and Sapphira both were in their sin by neglecting opportunities to change course when they were given. See, this isn't Peter at work. People would, would keep saying, Peter, why aren't you showing grace and mercy? But this isn't Peter at work. It's the Holy Spirit counteracting Satan's plot. So in the process, the Lord protected his church. He defended it. The Holy Spirit, as a person of the Trinity, has been lied to and grieved. And recognizing this, Peter speaks for him. And when we realize that this is the Lord at work, we can come to a few realizations. Because again, we might still say, where's the mercy and grace? This feels more like Old Testament wrath God as opposed to New Testament loving God. But knowing this is God at work can help us understand a few things. Now, I have to be honest. These next couple points don't come from me. See, many years ago, uh, my Bible professor, uh, Michael Smith, was teaching on this very passage, and this very topic came up. What about the mercy and grace? This is what he had to answer. So Dr. Smith, if you happen to stumble across this, I hope I didn't misquote you too bad. First thing to consider, the Lord sees the bigger picture. See, we have no way of knowing what further damage an unchecked Ananias and Sapphira would have caused if this wasn't stopped now. We have no way of knowing. But the Lord in his wisdom removed two believers from the community in order to prevent further damage. See, it's easy for us in our limited knowledge to call God harsh. But we have no knowledge of the amount of grace and mercy he had extended up to them to this point. But he does have that knowledge. We have no knowledge of what further damage could have been caused if they continued on. But he did. So why then would we judge a God whose knowledge is perfect with our knowledge that's severely limited? The second thing that this helps us keep in mind is that whether from outside threats or internal threats, the Lord will always protect his church. See, we've seen him protect the church from the religious leaders of the day, 
and others who would try and harm the believers. But now we see him defend them against the harmful actions of their very own. No one is immune to being in the receiving end of God's protection, both as the protected and the attacker. The history of the church is littered with moments where God's protective care is over it. Even when Jesus came on this earth in the form of a child, in the form of a baby, we saw God with a vigor protect and defend Jesus and his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, against all oncoming attacks. See, it may seem scary to see God's protective work in action, but as someone in need of protecting, it can also be a source of great comfort. And God's reminding his people that along with protecting them, he still takes sin very seriously. Grace and mercy is not something to be abused, not something to take advantage of. And nobody is immune. As my dad once said, when he had to make a very difficult announcement to his church, explaining why another staff member was no longer going to be working there due to a moral failure. He said, this could have been any of us. It could have been any of us. It requires us to say that, that popular phrase, but for the grace of God, go I. None of us are immune to the consequences of our sin. This is a reminder for the people witnessing this event that sin is never worth hiding in the shadow because it's never truly secret. It's a reminder to us all these years later of the same thing. Sin is destructive to God's people and God protects his people. No excuses including the ones that we mentioned earlier, are justifiable to sweep our sin under the rug. And none of them justified sweeping this sin either. But it still begs the question, what was the fallout for the church with this event? If the fear could have been, we can't let this get out for fear of what the consequences for us would be. When it got out, what did happen? Thankfully, Luke tells us, picking up in verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that even so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least a shadow might fall on some of them the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed The answer is the responses varied. See, some recognized the power of God at work 
but we're too fearful to be under the authority. See, it's one thing to know the power of God, but it's another to live in fear of it and miss the greater point. There's a delight in being in God's presence, but there's also a danger if we approach him not all in. Living one foot in God's kingdom and one foot foot on the glories of this earth as presented by the enemy. People who try and teeter into both sides. I remember uh, in high school, the first job I had was as a go-kart operator. And my best friend worked in another part of the amusement park. I think we were the only two Christians there. In fact, I know we're the only two Christians there because everyone made sure to tell us we were the only two Christians there. And there were some that would mock and ridicule us, but the ones that fascinated me the most were the ones that uh, recognized that there was something different going on in our lives, something unique, something special, so much so that they would tell everyone else, then they would try and mock us, they'd say, knock it off. There's something different going on there. And I may not be bought into it, but I don't want to mess with it. As a quick side note, funny thing, looking back on that, I wonder now what would have happened to those, to those folks if my friend and I had been a little bit bolder in sharing our faith with them. They were really close, but we didn't really take that next step with them. Just an interesting side note. You see, there are going to be some out there where they're going to see there is something real happening there, but I'm not ready to be sold out on it yet. Now, there's going to be others who are going to see all the blessing and maybe aim for that. Those who are in it for the the, the cool stuff that might happen, but might miss the point a little bit looking for the shadow of a man who's the mouthpiece of God rather than seeking after God himself. But then there's that third group. Those who see it, know it's what's been missing for them, and they jump on it. And we're told in this case that the Lord's church thrived that in greater numbers that had yet been seen before, they were added to the body of believers. And it was following an event where God dealt seriously with sin amongst his people. It didn't damage the integrity of the church. It didn't hinder their numbers. It skyrocketed them. The exact opposite of what most today would ever expect. See, not only did God protect his church through that protection, he made it thrive. Now, I have to be honest with you all. This was a challenging passage for me. It is unsettling. It is filled with uncertainty. 
And it can be easy for the takeaway to be worry. For the takeaway to be, when am I going to make that one final wrong move where God's just going to take me out? And I think if that's our takeaway, we've missed the point. I really think if that's our takeaway, we've missed the point. The very fact that you worry about that already tells me you're not like Ananias and Sapphira. Because if that was really a worry on their mind, they would have realized, at least partway through this plan, it's time to change your direction. It's time to change things up. But we do have some takeaways. Some hopeful, some that might be a little bit hard to hear. That we do need to take into consideration. And for me, they were in the form of questions as I evaluated the takeaways for me in this. Here's the first question that came to mind for me. Do I fall into the trap of hiding sin to avoid the perceived damaging fallout? Am I so worried that an uncovered sin is going to be more damaging than hiding the sin itself. So much so that I might even avoid confessing to anyone, even to God. I had to come to terms with that. One of the great privileges I get to do when I come up here is I'll usually ask someone to pray with me uh, be, before I come up during the service. Usually it's Tim Hampton, my good friend Tim Hampton over there. And today when we prayed, I had to make a point just to pray of, Lord, these, these are the areas where I just fall short. I need to be humbled in that. Humbled the right way. <laughs> the restorative way. Another question, do I trust that the Lord will protect his church? That in the midst of all of the, the chaos, the corruption that can happen, and sometimes it can get awfully discouraging, if we're being honest, when we see people fall hard, do I really believe that God is going to protect his church? That he's going to do whatever it takes, even if it might be some hard things? Some things that are going to seem really unpleasant and unpainful at the time. Last question. Am I on guard over sin in my own life? Am I keeping things in check? Because like I said, one of the scariest things in this passage to me is the fact that from everything we can tell, these two people were, were fellow believers in this Christian community. And they were heavily influenced by the work that Satan was doing. They were operating not by the promptings of the Holy Spirit, but by the enemy. I would never want that to be where I end up. But it does require being on guard. 
Just, just like Luke said here, after these events, how everyone saw it and there was a great fear that swept over. Not this fear over a tyrannical deity that is going to smite you without a moment's notice, but a fear of respect in recognizing that we serve a holy God who does not tolerate a sinful life being lived out who will stand firm against it. Because he recognizes it's not just that it damages us when we sin. Our sin isn't just a damage to us. It is a damage to the entire body. And so I'm left with that reminder once again. It could have been any of us. Are we on guard to faithfully follow, faithfully pursue, and be ready to serve him at all cost, knowing that he will protect us from all that might come across our path? Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that this is a, in many ways, sobering passage. And there are so many ways in which it is uncomfortable. And God, it is instinct to want to run away from that. But God, I ask and said that you would help us to lean in further. God, if there is anything that you are prompting in our hearts, any action that we need to take, anything that we need to start avoiding, would we hear it loud and clear? But would we also cling to the hope in knowing that you are a God who loves his people deeply, who will defend them at all costs, and as you protect, we thrive. We thank you for that this morning. Amen. They're about to play their last song. Um, but here's also what I'm going to say one last thing here before we hand it over to them. Um, we'll have some of our elders and folks around here that are available to pray with you during the last song. If you need anything you need to pray about, anything going on in your life, maybe even there's just been some wrong choices that you've started to realize you've been making that you need to bring out into the light and have someone pray with you on, we will do that with you. You can come to any of the people that will be around the, the walls here. You can come to myself. Even afterwards, after the service is over, if you're one of those people that's like, I don't like doing this during service, if you need to find one of us after, come grab one of us, and we would love to talk with you and pray with you. At this point, I'm going to turn it over and ask any one of our prayer warriors to come on around, and we would love to pray with you if you wish to do so.